Well, good evening, everyone, again. I want to invite you to turn to the book of Acts in the New Testament. We're going to pick up where we left off last week in the chapter 17, the book of Acts, chapter 17. Acts, as you might recall, in our on-again, off-again series, is the story of how the good news of Jesus is on the move to everyone, everywhere. As you're reading the beginning of the book of Acts, you see with each new chapter, that person? Wait, him? Wait, her? And Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is telling us each and every chapter, yes, the good news for everyone. Then we take a pivot toward the middle of the book of Acts, and we start to see people like Paul covering Mile after mile, town after town, people group after people group. This dude is summer road tripping hither and yon. And Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is screaming at us now from every page, Yes, the good news to everywhere. Last week we saw a group that was less receptive to this story. And in just a few moments, we're going to find another group that was a little more receptive. But before we get there, I want to tell you something. Maybe I've told you before. Maybe you've heard me tell you if we've been to lunch or coffee in the last, I don't know, year or year and a half. Depending on my mood and depending on how honest and transparent I am, you might have heard me say, I'm in a funk. And then my wife lovingly says, is it a funk if it's been a year and a half? And so I was sharing this thought with our elder team at one of our elder meetings a couple months ago. And I was kind of describing what that looked like, the shape that it was taking, how I was thinking about myself and my life and my vocation and my purpose. And I watched Toby and Jason especially just kind of side-eyeing each other, just kind of looking at each other with a knowing nod. Now, sorry to pull this cat out of the bag, but Toby and Jason are a little older than me. And they were side-eyeing each other because they thought my funk had a different name. It's called Entering Middle Age. <laughs> and at first I resisted this revelation. And then they began to share their own story and how they're just a few steps ahead on their journey. But they talked about how there's this natural inclination to enter a season of searching. A season of searching. So as I'm moving on and scratching my head and pondering these things after the elder meeting, a short time later, I go to a Rangers game with a mentor who is a pastor, coach, and he was in town and we went and spent a lot of time, even though baseball games are much shorter now by God's grace. And we were talking about these things as well. And then he gave me the side eye and the knowing nod because he's in his mid to late 40s. He said, dude. And it wasn't just a year and a half for me. I said, stop. And he goes, it was like four years, man. I'm like, ah. He goes, but let me give you a gift that I received. He said, I came across a book that within it had questions for each decade of life. 
he realized that this person that wrote the book sat down with a group of church leaders and said, can you really lead well unless you're versed in the kinds of questions that people are searching and longing for at each season of their life, middle age or otherwise? So what follows is a smattering of questions for the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 60s. Shout out to those in your 50s, 70s, and 80s. There are more questions. If you want to see those, I can share those with you offline. But for now, I want to explore some of these and see which ones resonate with you, because I think they're all questions that send us on a quest for meaning and purpose and searching. And watch how they vary and see if you can track with these as well. So first, let's explore these questions for those in their 20s. Now, I don't know if you can see these very well on this screen. You might see them better there. I'm not sure if you can see them online. But I'll read them briefly as you're looking. And I want to ask you which ones resonate with you or better, which ones sting a little bit. This is from Gordon McDonald in his book, A Resilient Life. Questions for your 20s. What kind of person am I becoming? What will I do with my life? What is it that I really want in exchange for my life's labors? Around what person or conviction will I organize my life? What parts of my life need correction? You don't have to say which one, but those of you who've moved beyond your 20s, show of hands if any of these were percolating in your 20-something brain and heart when you were growing up. What's interesting is there's more questions that he explores, and one of them is, what kind of friends do I really have in my life's journey? Who's really whittling down as I get older to my core group? They're searching for community. They're searching for purpose. They're searching for meaning. Questions in their 20s. Now, for our 30-somethings, questions of your 30s. How do I prioritize the demands made on my life? Where are the people with whom I know I walk through life? So if the 20s, you're searching for your group, the 30s are like, no, I know that they're with me through thick and thin. Or where are they still? Number three. How far can I go in fulfilling my sense of purpose? What does my spiritual life look like? Do I even have time for one? Number five, why am I not a better person? Now I hesitate to ask which one of you wants to raise your hand if any of these resonated or resonate. Because the better question is, do any of them sting a little bit? What's fascinating as you get to your 30s is you start to realize the wet cement that you poured in your young adulthood is starting to harden and congeal. You start to realize that these are my people. This kind of seems like my trajectory. But what my mentor and I were talking about the Rangers game is that so often when you're exiting your 30s and entering your 40s, that is most often when people hit the eject button on their life. They change their career. They change their relationship status because all of a sudden it starts to sink in. In my search for meaning and purpose, am I on the right track? Now the questions of your 40s. 
Why do some people seem to be doing better than I? Why am I often disappointed in myself and others? Why are limitations beginning to outnumber options? Why do I seem to face so many uncertainties? You're supposed to have things figured out by now, right? What can I do to make a greater contribution? The addendum to that last question is, what can I do to change course to do what I really feel passionate about, to do what I really feel led to do? That could be when the eject button is used for benevolent purposes, And you realize maybe there's more to life. But these are all questions that are in search of meaning and purpose. Now, I didn't include some in their 50s. But I will tell you that another friend of mine that is in his 50s told me that really it can be summed up in this question, your 40s and 50s. If my 20s and 30s were about getting what I want, when I reach my 50s and 40s, Will I want what I have? Ouch. If the first couple decades of adulthood are about getting what I want, am I at a place where I actually want what I have? Let's throw in, lastly, some questions of your 60s. When do I stop doing the things that have defined me? Like retirement. Do I have enough time to do all the things I've dreamed about? Who will be around me when I die? What? I love this last question, or the fourth question. You see it? Are the things I believe in capable of taking me to the end? Number five, what do I regret? It's getting real now. All of these are in search of meaning and purpose. You're looking back in order that you might look ahead to whatever time you have left, knowing that it is more and more precious. You're searching for meaning and purpose. And I think what we learn is that so often these questions never get verbalized. They never get codified. And so what happens is we start just picking at anything that we think will satisfy the search. And it can look like a funk for me in my late 30s, or it can look like in your 80s, the question Gordon McDonald poses for those in their 80s, does anybody know that I used to be good at basketball? or my job, that I actually owned a business? Does anybody care about what I spent my life doing, or is all they see grandpa so-and-so, and they have no concept of the life that was before? So wherever you are in your decade, wherever you are, if it's a funk or it's a search, you are collecting dots to give meaning and purpose, to know that you matter. And so when we approach a book like Acts, And we see faithful, religious people who have dots that look like law and a relationship with the one true God. 
You see that they've collected all these other things to help make that faith livable. And then when you see the group of Greek philosophizing junkies, they have a whole other set of dots that looks like how life ought to be enjoyed and something that seems new and different and interesting. So whether we're living in the world of Acts 17 or we're living in 2023, you need to understand they probably ask those same questions that you and I are asking. Understand that we could have had a whole other set of questions for the teenagers in our life. But just know that Teenagers and octogenarians are collecting dots as we search for meaning and purpose. They say job, stuff, status, money. But Jesus connects the dots. Jesus is the ultimate dot connector as the story God's telling and a life worth living. You have, are, or will search for meaning and purpose. But what gives shape to the story of your life? When you say, yes, Jesus, you are Lord, and I'm setting off to follow you, you go through the waters of baptism, you have said that the Jesus story, his life, death, resurrection, his living, risen presence within me and around me is the thing that animates and gives shape to my life. It gives shape to how I relate to the poor, the vulnerable, and the enemy. It shapes how I relate to the other. It shapes how I give my time, my money, my life. And yet so often, we can say that, and then we get so distracted. We start chasing other dots. Self, status, stuff. What gives shape to the story of your life? These two groups that I just mentioned, you could identify as the faithful Jews who were the keepers of the story. They had the dots up to a certain point. And then when Paul entered in, as we saw last week in Thessalonica, and he said, here's where the story was headed all along. The crucifixion and resurrection of God's anointed one, Jesus, our Lord. Get on board with him and find life everlasting. And they said, no. So they rounded up a mob that were wearing leather jackets and sitting like this in the alley smoking cigarettes. And they said, you, Fonzie and your crew, go start a riot. Do our dirty work. Get these rabble-rousers out of town because we're the keepers of the story and we don't like the next chapter. And so Paul has to scoot out in the dead of night, as we're about to see. And they still follow him down in Berea, the next town. And they cause more trouble. Because they could not see how the story includes suffering and crucifixion. That life is truly on the other side of death. They're the keepers of the story. And we're going to see at the end of our time, this Greek philosophy junkies. In the hub and home of Athens, the center point for ancient Greek philosophy. If the Jewish folk are the keepers of the story, the Greek philosophers are searching for the plot. They have a lot of dots, and Paul will connect them with both the Jewish folk and the Greek folk and see how Jesus is the only one worth connecting dots. 
Let's read this brief passage in Berea, and then we'll carry it through through the book of Acts chapter 17 as he goes down to the town of Athens. Let's start in verse 10. So as soon as it was night, the believers, that would be the church in Thessalonica, where weeks later Paul's going to write a letter back to them saying, sorry I had to bail, but stay strong. That became the letter of 1 Thessalonians. But on arriving in Berea, they went to the Jewish synagogue just like they had done before. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. That's shady, Luke, but okay. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too. You see, they went back down to stir it up again, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. So the believers immediately sent Paul down the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So unlike Thessalonica, these keepers of the story searched the story, examined the story, and they see Jesus as where the story was headed all along. That's where we got last week. But I want you to understand that as you approach where the story is leading in our culture, in our church, in your family, understand that you have a repository of the story that preceded you. And you can do your very best with the example and precedent of the way it reveals God's heart and the way Jesus shows us what God looks like. Understand that God looks like Jesus. The scriptures say in Colossians, Hebrews, and Ephesians that he's the image of the invisible God. Jesus is God con carne. Jesus is God with meat. Jesus is what God looks like. There's never been a time when God does not look like Jesus. We just didn't know it yet. This is where we were last week. So you look at the story, you look at the life and example of Jesus, and you project outward how to relate to the world around you based on those that have come before and been faithful to keep the story. The Bereans studied and said, this checks out. This looks like a divine desire that is always breaking boundaries and including those who were formerly excluded. I've seen in the Hebrew scriptures, I hear in the mission and work of Jesus, how this looks and smells like God. This must be where the story's headed. Scripture and the example of Jesus are the litmus test for whatever next step comes your way. They could not have imagined at all what 2023 would look like. But they would have a sense of the same kind of people asking the same kind of questions, searching for meaning and purpose. And we have enough to know 
that we can find in Jesus the way, the truth, and the life. And the story is pointing us to him. That's the Bereans. That's why I think this church that I played music at a D now 20 years ago was called Berean Baptist Church. Because they wanted to be like them, studying the scriptures. It's not a bad name. Let's pick up the story. Let's see him move to the next group, those searching for the plot. So now Paul is 50 miles down the coast, way out of the way, hoping that the Fonz and his crew doesn't muck it up down there. So we pick the story back up in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue. He's at the synagogue again. Do you see his starting point? I'm going to start with those who are seeking within the context of our story. This is the third time, third city, same chapter, he started at the synagogue. So he started in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day. So he moved from beyond the church walls to where the people actually were in the marketplace, and he starts telling them, Jesus is Lord. And so a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, they began to debate with him. Some of them ask, what is this babbler trying to say? That word could be loosely translated as somebody that like throws down words. Somebody they thought was trying to sound smart. But they had no context for the plot of the story he was saying. This is new news to them. Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. The word resurrection in Greek is anastasis. That sounds like a female name or a female deity. So they hear about resurrection and their philosophers have done Greek plays and tragedies that famously speak to when you're dead, you're dead. So they hear anastasis and they think he must be talking about some female God. And what Paul is preaching to them is that through Jesus, it's possible to have life beyond death. So they say in verse 19, Okay, we want to bring you to a meeting of the Areopagus. Maybe your Bible says Mars Hill, which is super cool sounding, depending on what podcasts you've heard lately. (laughs) Where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. So they're at least curious. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. I love that insertion. So Paul meets these Greek philosophers, chiefly some Epicureans and some Stoics. They had been asking life questions, philosophizing, wondering, searching for meaning. Why am I here? What are we doing? And so why was it hard for them to connect the dots? When he starts talking about a crucified and risen king, well, firstly, we can see as we carry on with the third way, if you look back to last week, why it was hard for them to connect the dots. 
You see, Epicureans, and maybe you've heard that term, Epicurean. Epicurean that now is like a connotation of somebody that's got a taste for the finer things. Does that start to ring some bells? Here's why. Epicureans believe that if there is a God, he's out to lunch and a long way off. Epicureans say, sure, maybe, I don't know, but look around. No way is he intervening with our daily life and our parking spots at the mall. So understand that the Epicureans turn that into a livable faith. They connect that dot by saying, may as well enjoy it. God doesn't care. And so they took a philosophical approach. They had had all these dots that led them to say, God's a long way off if there is a God, so you may as well eat something tasty and have a good time. Then they were not only debating Paul, they were routinely debating the Stoics. I know y'all heard Stoics, right? A Stoic person, a Stoic look. Well, the genesis of this philosophical movement is actually akin to the opposite of the Epicurean belief. It's not that God's way out there. It's that God is in here and in there and in there and in this and in that. They are what could be called now as panentheists. Pantheists say God is everything. Panentheists say God is within everything. So the Stoics turned those dots and connected them as a livable state of saying, so get connected with your inner truth. And the chief end of life, what we have found to search for the plot is to say, if you get connected with goodness within and live your truth, you are on the right path. Now, Epicureans, Stoics, Take a step back and say, co-worker, cousin, father-in-law, do you know any modern day people that take one of these two approaches, searching and collecting dots for meaning, that think that maybe there's a God, but I don't really have time to think about it. I do. I know a person in my family when I asked him about, do you ever think about God? And he looked at me and he said, mm. and I said, what about at night? When you're dealing with those kind of big questions we started our talk with. He goes, mm. mostly I think about my to-do list and expense reports for tomorrow. If there is a God, I got too much life to live. Do you have any Stoics? that think Jesus sounds cool, he was a great teacher and he's awesome, but also he's just the same as all the others. He's not the one that connects all the dots. He's not the one that gives shape in his exclusivity to say, follow me to find life. That's why it was hard to connect the dots. There's two other reasons as we look for the last two. The first you see at the very beginning of our time in Athens, Paul was troubled because of how many idols he saw. There was no room for God at the top. It's pretty crowded up here. 400 years before Paul was kicking it around Athens, the, uh, the Pantheon 
Y'all know it. You've seen it in Hercules and Disney. You can go see it today. The beautiful building that is still sitting on top of the hill, not too far from where Paul was talking. It was dedicated to Athena 400 years before Paul was walking around, and it was filled with statues. They had plenty of other gods. And you say, well, I don't have any gods and statues on my mantelpiece, but I would ask you, what gives the most shape to your life? That's what's sitting on the mantle of your heart. Is it your politics? Is it your bank account? What gets the most time in here? That's a good test to see, oh, I think that's where I've connected the dots of my heart to something that's not God. The trick when we say that Jesus is Lord is that we cease to connect the dots of our heart's meaning and purpose and attention and time and love. And we cease to connect those to the other fleeting things like stuff, status, self, sex, substances, fill in the blank. And we try to connect all of these to the lordship of Jesus. That those things find their proper place underneath the one in whom we live and move and have our being. The final sticking point for them was resurrection. They had no room for God in mystery. What is this resurrection? Anastasis. Ultimately, it's about proclamation and a leap of faith. Take a step back and consider your own heart, those in your life. Where are those dots being difficult to connect? I'll tell you that a friend of mine years ago told me, I really like Jesus but I can't get over the resurrection. I think Jesus is awesome, but I don't think that he's alive. And I looked at him and said, hmm, yeah, that's kind of a big deal. <laughs> but keep searching, keep searching. So they asked Paul to tell him, and this is what he says. This, of course, is Luke's summary of a long sermon, surely, that Paul did. If y'all have ever read Romans, y'all know that this man didn't just give a 10-verse sermon. This is a summary. So in verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. That's a good rhetorical start. Hey, y'all look good today. You're really searching. Verse 23, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Pause there. They had so many gods, they wanted to be sure that they didn't offend the one that helped them get well from that fever yesterday. So they'd cover their bases by making a statue in honor of whichever God it was that helped us. To an unknown God, let's cover our bases. So you can imagine Paul walking through the marketplace, seeing that and says, I'm going to name the one that healed them, that made them, that is the terminus of their search 
for meaning and purpose. I'm going to introduce them to the unknown God who is longing to be made known. And that's what he does. So he quotes their poets. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, God himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. You see what he's doing? God created you and you and them and them and them, and he has them in a place. Why? Verse 27. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Then he quotes their poets. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. How many of you love that phrase, in him we live and move and have our being? How many of you knew that it wasn't from a Jewish or Christian source? But if it's true, it must be from the true one. For do we not live and move and have our being in the one who's holding all things together? Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. No, he keeps going. In the past, you see, God overlooked such ignorance while we're searching, seeking, groping. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That's a word to turn from your idols, turn from yourself, and turn to Jesus. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Verse 32 when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. At each place, Paul is proclaiming the risen one. Now is the time to turn to him. But listen, what Paul did was quote their people. He found a common ground. Paul was observant. He looked at where they were searching. He had a sense of the questions they were asking. And Paul became conversant and spoke to them as actual human people that can think for themselves. But rather than point the finger... Paul points to the bigness of God. He says, you have this sense. He points to the impulse of humanity to seek after that big God. He's bigger than the things that you've carved yourself. He's giving you life and breath even now. And so what he does, he says, but now's the time he's made himself known in the person of Jesus. And he names the one that's been unknown. 
He names the one that wants to be known because Paul doesn't wag the finger and belittle them. No, he points a flashlight to the one who will show them the way as they search through the darkness. He shows them the way. As we close, I want to tell you about a panel that a pastor named Zach Lambert in Austin was privy to. And at this panel, they gathered up seekers, non-Christians. And these non-Christians got on stage at a church actually here in Dallas. And they asked this panel a question and says, what do you wish Christians who approached you to share their faith had? And this man on this panel stood up and he said these three things. I wish Christians who approached me to share their faith had friendship. Because even if I don't convert, we can still have a friendship, a relationship. We can still get coffee or a beer. I wish they had, number two, empathy. Understanding the why behind my caution, curiosity, or disinterest. You understand the people you're encountering at work have probably encountered an American Christian church for good or bad. Understand that they have had a story that brought them to this point too. Finally, he said, I wish Christians who approached me to share their faith had thirdly this, a willingness to listen instead of waiting for their turn to talk or offer a rebuttal. Did you hear this? Did you hear him say, I wish that they had memorized their Bible and could answer every single question I could throw at them? Do you wish, he said, if only they had read that book by Lee Strobel? Those who have ears to hear know, and you probably grew up in a Southern Baptist church in the 90s. But what all of these things look like, really, bottom line is this. Love. Friendship. Relationship. So Pastor Zach Lambert, talking about that panel, offered these three reminders that will close us. Hey, like Paul, you can be observant. You can be conversant. He says, you know how to be a friend. So do your best to love them well. Listen, be empathetic. Understand that the Holy Spirit is working and moving even if it's not on your timetable. Understand that God loves them and longs for them more than you. So you know how to be a friend. Just keep showing up. Show up. And when you got to say something, number two, you know your story of what God has done in your life. You think, oh, this is too little. You know what it is? Livable. People think that Christianity is something about we think and believe and it's up in the clouds. Our faith is not just meant to be believed, it's meant to what? Be lived. You can be a Christian con carne. Oh, that's what it looks like when God works. Oh, it's not an audible voice and fire from the mountain. It's when you pay attention to how he shows up in your life. You know your story. Finally, he said, you have a flashlight to point them to the one who can love them perfectly. You love them imperfectly, but you got a flashlight that can point them through the darkness to the one who can love them perfectly. This is what Paul did. He found two groups of people 
that we're searching for someone and something to connect the dots. You're going to meet someone this week that is trying their best to connect the dots through suffering and struggle and pain and mystery. And you don't have all the answers, but you can show up and point them to the one in whom they live and move and have their being and say, you can know the one you're looking for in Jesus, our King. So would you help us, Father, to that end, to be good ambassadors of the one who is calling us that we might seek him and find him. Amen and amen. Our story matters because God is writing his story with us. He has created us and called us by name to bring his light in the darkness, to speak his truth in the wilderness, to bring his hope for the hopeless. Now may God give us strength in our weakness, peace in our trouble, and boldness to proclaim the good news of Jesus that brings eternal life to all those who see, believe, and